I saw a cartoon this week that I found amusing. It's always difficult to communicate a cartoon, but we'll see if it lands. It's between two chickens talking. We'll call one Henny and the other Rooster. Henny said this, remember when we used to be more nostalgic? And Rooster responded, yeah, those were the good old days. Yeah, it didn't go as much as I thought it would. <laughs> We're in the middle of this series, looking for love in all the wrong places, and maybe the subtext would be looking for security in all the wrong places. We looked at narcissism initially with the love of self and how that is an evaporating reality and does not give us much comfort. Last week, Jackie brought us into nice things and how accumulation gives us a sense of security until we have to get rid of all of our accumulation. And uh, we realize that those things gave us a false hope. Today, we look at the notion of nostalgia, love of the good old days. So what are the good old days? Uh, I grew up hearing my grandfather talk about the good old days. They were the Depression. <laughs> it was so cold in the cottage that they lived in that the water froze by the bed at night. When their second son was born, he was born a little premature. He was so small, they put him in a milk carton on the stove at night. He was a pastor, a country pastor. There were weeks when their only hope was that someone would show up with a basket of vegetables and leave it outside the door. Those were the good old days. <laughs> I see a gleamer in my father's eyes every once in a while. He'll take saltine crackers and break them up into a bowl and pour milk over them. Now, there's every other kind of delicacy in the refrigerator, but he's gleaming. See, he grew up in incredible poverty. His father died when he was six months old. They did not have running water in the house. He began working probably at age 11 or 12 and gave all the money to his mother to help provide. But when he was a kid, a treat was to take saltine crackers and break them into a bowl and put milk over it. And Oh, that just brought such delight to his soul. Uh, my nostalgia involves the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> that may be the only legitimate nostalgia there is in the world. <laughs> nostalgia, by definition, is an ache in the soul, a longing for some time in the past. Now, it's hard to differentiate because all of us have a longing for the kingdom of God. And there may be an echo of paradise lost that is an echo to the past, but it's a longing for something better. We pray it every week, Lord, your kingdom come. It's an old world. The Greek poets and the philosophers talked about it. It was reclaimed by the age of romanticism. Someone defined it as slightly sad and yet affectionate feeling for the past. Now, when you say nostalgia, it doesn't seem that so bad. I'm feeling kind of nostalgic today. But I want to tell you it's a dangerous thing because nostalgia is an illusion because it only tells part of the story. It forgets the water freezing beside the uh, edge of the bed. It forgets no running water. 
and it forgets the reality of the situation it was in. Any time that we are forced in our lives to live in the past or exclusively in the future, we're missing God's design for us. And nostalgia will do that to us. Remember when. We have a great story in God's people how their longing for the past got them stuck in the past and didn't allow them to experience God's preferable future for them. So let's go to the text and look at it. It's a great passage. It's one of my favorite ones, and I say that about all of them, so... Numbers 11, if you're new to the Bible, uh, Genesis is the first book. Go right, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the Bible. It's on page 140 in your pew Bible. You want to look at it because we'll look at some of the elements in the story together. Uh, To go into this passage, I need to give you some context. This is a story of God's people. We know them as the Hebrews or the Jews. They spent 400 years in slavery. Now, I don't know how to get your mind around that. That's 150 more years than the age of this country. That's 100 more years than the age of this church. 400 years of oppressive slavery. That's their history. But they had a liberator. It was God. Scripture says he heard their situation and he sent an ambassador by the name of Moses. Moses is not their liberator. God is their liberator. Moses delivers God's message to Pharaoh, let my people go. And God uses Moses in that space. Now, Numbers 11 and 12 are two chapters that could be just preached on leadership principles. We get to see so much about Moses in these moments. Pastor Nathan is on vacation in Alaska. He's probably watching, or he'll watch the tape of it, high out there in TV land. (laughs) Right now, I want to step down and give him a quick lecture on leadership in these two chapters. I was out to breakfast with one of you this week, and you reminded me of one of my favorite definitions of leadership. It's bearing other people's pain. Two chapters that Moses deals with the pain of God's people and God uses them, uses him to help try to recorrect them where they need to be. But after they're liberated, they get to experience God in ways that we will never get to experience. God's presence is in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we know nothing can contain God, but God was in that box to them. And God makes his presence known to them in very clear ways. His guidance is with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. Wouldn't that be great to have that kind of leading by God? Just that clear. His provision for them, they strike rock and water comes out. The manna that we're going to talk about in this passage, his daily provision for them to eat and to be sustained as a people. His healing touch, Jehovah Rohi, is introduced to us when the bitter waters are turned clear. God's miracles are coming one after another and a promised future that they're going to have their own land. Now think about it, 400 years of slavery and you've got this promise that you're going to your own land. And Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner, that's how he's introduced in this passage, 
is the one that's going to lead them into the land. This is pretty good stuff. This is the stuff that we lay about at night thinking, if God would just operate this way in my life, then I would be sure that everything was all right. But now it's been 14 months. This is the longest organized pilgrimage in history to this point. And it's, we're going to see, going to go for 40 years because of the people's response. But 14 months of God's provision had become a little bit annoying to the people. And this is how the text goes, verses 1 through 3. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The people complained. Here is one of the greatest challenges when we experience blessing in life. There's always a tendency to say, I just wish there was something a bit more. Now, there's reason for complaint in the scriptures. There's complaint psalms. They're called imprecatory psalms. God loves when we're being challenged and we come to him and say, hey, God, what's up with that? But the word that's used here is a rare word. It's to murmur. It's to indulge in complaint. It's a representation of internal ingratitude. It could be reflected in the line, Lord, what have you done for me lately? And this is where the people are at. And the Lord's anger burned against them. Literally. There was a blaze. Talk about the presence of the Holy Spirit. The whole camp around them is burning. Now, we as Westerners have a real hard time with an angry God. It's because we haven't resolved our own emotions to anger. Anger itself is not bad. Scripture says, be angry and sin not. Why is God angry? He's not angry at them. He's angry for them. He's saying, I'm bringing you to this place. And so his anger burns to warn them. I wish God's judgment were this quick today. You know, most of the problems that come to me when I get to the point of counseling people, it's gone so far down the road that it's very challenging to be helpful to the people at that point. The hole has been dug so deep. God would have been gracious at one of the earlier sins and one of the earlier infidelities and one of the earlier things if he had flicked them up by the side of the head or hit our lawn with some fire. <laughs> you know, God might be more gracious to me if he'd come up behind me and flick me in the ear every once in a while and say, stop doing that. But God's judgment here is because he's concerned for their future. And the people then cry out again. Here you get to see the grace of God's judgment. And Moses does what Moses does. He prays. <clears throat> and there's peace in the camp. But peace is very short-lived when there's a group of people together. Verse 4. Now the rabble... I like the translation riffraff, but you can use rabble. <laughs> that was among them had a strong craving. 
And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Uh, the next couple of verses, I'm not going to go into them, talk about this manna and what it is. It's this kind of a porridge that gets built into a cake. The closest thing I can think of to it in Mali, we had a thing called millet. It was called toe in the Bombarda language, and they would grind it, and it was a pasty thing, and it was lifeless. You could only do one thing with it. You had to dip it in some kind of sauce to cover it up. Think of a hardened farina. I think of the old Keith Green song about different ways you can prepare manna, baked manna, fried manna, all those kinds of things that are there. But it had become disgusting to them. It was God's provision, but it had become boring. Wow. I don't know where that came from, but when God's provision becomes boring. Woke up this morning and had breath of life. Most of us had food to eat. We're in a company of people that loves us and cares for us. The majority of us have work that provides for our family needs. So easily I get bored with God's provision. And so the people start reminiscing. I love this. Only God's holy word would have this in it. Remember the fish? <laughs> the cucumbers? The melons? And the garlic? As you can tell my voice, I'm not feeling so well, so I didn't have breakfast because I really wanted to get into this event. You have to be hungry to understand what they're saying. Those things don't really impress us that much, so just come with me for a moment. An everything bagel. <laughs> Lightly toasted, not too much, just a little bit brown on the edge, just smeared a little bit with butter. Two eggs, over easy, a little American cheese melted over. Bake and cook just around a time so it just kind of leans over those eggs, not too crispy. The yolk of the egg is just so right that when you bite in, it drips a little bit on your chin. Good European coffee, the kind where your spoon stands up in it. Cuts the grease for you as you go. And then every good breakfast needs a dessert, so two old-fashioned donuts from Lakeside Diner. <laughs> Is your mouth watering now? And this is where the people were. But the line that catches everything for me, it says, and it cost us nothing. 400 years of slavery, and it cost us nothing. And God's provision is before them, and they're missing it completely. 
verses 10 through 15. I smell that the burgers are ready, so we're not going to do it. I'll summarize them this way. I can see your mouth watering now. <laughs> Moses hears all this and he says, kill me now. <laughs> he goes to nostalgia. Remember the days when I didn't have a purpose, God, and I was stranded out in Midian and I was walking behind those sheep all the time? All I heard for day after day was, bah, bah. <laughs> I miss the good old days. So what? Nostalgia is dangerous. It's dangerous for two reasons, because it's not true. It can cause us to breed ingratitude because we get stuck in the past. And we don't live out a full reality. We become miserable. We become complainers. And this is a message that's easy for me to preach because every one of us does this. We all do it. It's so easy to forget what is in the present from the Lord. But more dangerously, it can impede God's bounty for our future. Only in two chapters, they're going to send the spies into the land and they're going to come back and say, the land is better than you imagined. But the spirit of murmuring and complaining was so deep in them that 10 of those 12 leaders caused the people to disbelieve God and they spend 40 years in the wilderness. You see, I can't stop God's big design for what he's doing in this world. He doesn't force me to partner, but he invites me into it. I can miss his bounty in my life by being stuck falsely in the past when he's ready to launch me into the things he has for the present. God says, I have a plan for you. It's a plan of freedom. It's a plan of fruitfulness. It's a plan of flourishing. Join me. And the only reason he's angry is the same way that you and I get angry when our children miss the bounty of God. It's because he wants it for us. He wants it for us. So what's my now what? Develop a theology of remembering, not an attitude of nostalgia. Remembering recounts all the good things that God has done and creates a response of praise and thanksgiving out of me that allows me to live fully present in the space that I'm at and enjoy God's fruitfulness and expectation for what he has in the future. I would never say kill longing. Longing has to be a part of us because the kingdom is not yet. Our friends go into the prison and we need to join them because the kingdom is not yet. There's a longing for what God has for all humanity. But in that longing, we can't go back to nostalgia. Remember when. A couple weeks ago, I was sitting out in my backyard. I live in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Had my big fire pit going. Only thing better than bacon is fire. 
I was enjoying the fruit of the vine. the leaf of the tear. And I'm sitting there, the sun's gone down, <clears throat> it's idyllic, and I hear this word, Chuck, are you crazy to leave this? Already leaning into nostalgia. And God in His graciousness immediately gave me this word, Oh, my son, you have no idea the things I have prepared for you. Ingrid was in another place in the country, and she was having the same conversation with God. Oh, my daughter, you have no idea the things I have planned for you. Let's not be people of nostalgia. Let's be people of expectation and gratefulness. It's all right before us. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>